All right, let's ask the Lord's help to understand his word and apply it to our hearts as we look at it together. Father, um, we thank you for this time of year that is a reminder to us of the greatest miracle that has ever occurred when God himself took on flesh, became a man to walk among us for 30 some odd years, living a righteous life in our place so that he could then go to the cross and die in our place. We thank you for what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished, for what he has done, and not only what he has done to accomplish our salvation, but the example that he has set for us on how we are to live. He set an example for us to follow in his steps. Lord, we want to follow him. We want to walk the paths that he walked. We want to fellowship with him every day. Lord, help us to walk closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that through your word, you would accomplish that in our lives, that you would help us to see the path that he has marked out for us, that he wants us to walk, and that through his spirit, he would enable us to walk that path to his glory. And for the good of one another and for the salvation of the lost, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you did grab an outline, you don't need it, but if you did, there's a map on the back. Uh, just before we look at the passage, there's a number of places that Paul mentions um, that he stopped along the way for, in his third missionary journey. And I just want to orient you to that before we begin. Um, in Paul's third missionary journey, he began from his home church, Antioch. And he passed through the Roman province of Galatia. There's some churches there. And then he came to Ephesus in the province of Asia. And he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. So that was the stop on his third missionary journey that he was on when he wrote this letter. And he'll talk about having to pass through Macedonia, which is north of the Aegean Sea. That's where the Philippian church is, the Thessalonican church and then down to Achaia, which is where Corinth is. So if you want to make use of that map as we go along, just so you can understand the places that Paul is talking about. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning, and we're looking at the first 12 verses. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. 
But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. We've entered into the season of giving, and it's fitting that in God's providence, we are wrapping up 1 Corinthians, that we are going through chapter 16. And it's fitting because chapter 16 begins with Paul making plans with this church to give toward the needs of others. And 1 Corinthians 16 is not the only place that Paul speaks about this particular giving effort that is underway. The collection that he's talking about here, he also speaks of in other places, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul is trying to spur on these believers to complete this good work that they have begun, gathering this collection for suffering saints, in verse 9 of that chapter, Paul holds up Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of giving. And this is what he says. For you know the grace or the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that's talking about the incarnation. God, Jesus, the Son of God, as the owner of all things, and as the all-sufficient one who doesn't need anyone and doesn't need anything, This same God took on flesh, became a little baby, crying and naked, born into this world. He put himself in the position of needing everything. The one who owns all things, who needs nothing, put himself in the position of needing everything, that of a little baby. And why did he do that? He did that in order to give us everything. And I want us to keep that in mind as we walk through this chapter, chapter 16. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see some very practical ways in which we are to love one another. Practical ways in which we can follow Christ's example in giving of ourselves so that we might enrich others. Not only materially, but spiritually. And the first example that we see in this letter is regarding the collection. We see this in verses 1 through 4, the collection. Verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In this verse, we come to a familiar phrase, now concerning, now concerning. The first time we saw that phrase was back in chapter 7 and verse 1. That was the long marriage chapter that we walked through together. Chapter 7, verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. There, Paul used this phrase, now concerning, to introduce a topic that the Corinthians had brought up in a letter that they had written to him. And each time this phrase, now concerning, shows up throughout the rest of the letter, it seems to introduce another topic that the Corinthians had written about, maybe asking him about in their letter to him. We see the phrase pop up again in that same chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning virgins. We saw it again in chapter 8, verse 1, 
Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, then we saw it in chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, and we see it again here in chapter 16. And this phrase is used for the fifth time here in verse 1. And apparently, as this phrase indicates, the Corinthians had questions about a collection of aid money that Paul had planned with this church. And their question about it seems to surround, how do we gather this money? And once we've gathered it, what do we do with it? How do we get it to where it needs to go? And that's what Paul is addressing with them. As I mentioned before, talking about that map, Paul famously took three missionary journeys during his ministry. And that doesn't include the last journey he was on when he was arrested and taken to Rome. But he took three missionary journeys. And 1 Corinthians was written by Paul in the context of his third missionary journey. And one of the goals that Paul had in carrying out this journey was to orchestrate the collection and the delivery of this love offering that was being collected from many Gentile churches. And this offering was not a general offering. It was for a specific purpose, for a specific time. And the reason for the taking of this offering is not mentioned here in these four verses. But as I mentioned before, Paul talks about it other places. For example, turn back to Romans chapter 15. The letter to the church in Rome was written toward the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he spoke about this offering to them. Romans 15, starting in verse 25. Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia, remember that's churches like Philippi and the church at Thessalonica, Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Corinth is, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Where did the gospel first go forth from? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So that is how the Gentiles have benefited from the church in Jerusalem because the gospel went forth from Jerusalem. They benefited greatly from the Jerusalem church. And now those Gentile churches have an opportunity to return the favor, so to speak, to love them back by giving materially to them. 1 Corinthians was written earlier on before Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in this missionary journey, and he wrote it from the city of Ephesus, but he would write the Corinthians again not long after writing 1 Corinthians. And this other letter, which we also have in our Bibles, is called, you guessed it, 2 Corinthians. And he continues to talk about this collection. It's interesting a lot of times we don't think of the fact that Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they weren't written all that far apart. He wrote all of these letters during his third missionary journey. And he's still talking about it in 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I 
just want to show you a couple spots. The whole chapter of 8 and the whole chapter of 9 are regarding this collection, but just to point out a couple of specific spots, chapter 8, verse 13, regarding this collection, Paul says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. The church in Jerusalem was a needy church. There was a lot of people there who were poor. They needed help. So that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul there, he's telling them that we're not taking this collection just to make you go through some pain. No, there's a legitimate need at the church in Jerusalem. They are suffering need. And it so happens that in God's providence, he has given you, or you Gentile churches an abundance. And out of your abundance, he has positioned you to meet their need. And the time may come when you are suffering need, and that Jerusalem church may have an abundance, and then they will be able to meet your need. That is how brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to act toward one another. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, turn to chapter 9. We find some more reasons why this collection is being taken. It's not simply to meet a physical need. Chapter 9, verse 10. Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So as God prospers us and puts us in a position to be able to give to others, it's not simply to meet a need, but so that God may receive thanksgiving from those who are so provided for. Verse 12, For the ministry of this service, speaking of the collection, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, that is the believers in the Jerusalem church, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. When there's a need among us and God equips us to be able to meet that need, and out of obedience to Christ we go forward to meet that need, God knits the hearts of his children together. The one who's receiving, his heart is knitted to the one who's giving. And in return to you, for your giving to meet his need, the one who's receiving prays for you, yearns for you, loves you. And so this collection is not only for meeting a physical need, it is for fostering unity within the church and fostering unity between two different ethnicities, Gentiles and Jews in the church. So these are things that this collection is going to accomplish. Now, as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16, apparently the Corinthians had questions about it. And in answer to whatever questions the Corinthians had raised in their letter to Paul about this collection, Paul says that he wants them to go about collecting these funds 
in the same way that he had directed the churches in Galatia to go about collecting these funds. These Galatian churches probably included the churches that Paul and Barnabas founded in Paul's first missionary journey. And if you're interested in reading about that, that's in Acts 13 and 14. Those Galatian churches were the church of Pisidian Antioch, the church of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those are the churches Paul's talking about. But what were the directions Paul gave these churches? Well, we find that in verse 2 of chapter 16. Paul says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. We can break this verse down into four specific instructions. First, the believers in Corinth, they were to contribute to this collection on a specific day, and they were to contribute repeatedly. Paul says, on the first day. What was that? That's Sunday, when believers would gather together to worship the Lord. And he says, on the first day of every week. So not just one week when Paul rolls into town, it's every week leading up to Paul's arrival. Repeated giving until the collection was sent off. Second, Every believer was to take part. It wasn't to be just a handful of rich folks writing $10,000 checks, not that they wrote checks back then, but that's not how it was to be. It was to be every believer within the church. This was to be a love offering from the whole church of Corinth, not just from a few wealthy people. Paul says, each one of you is to put aside and save. Third, they were to be intentional in their giving. Intentional. This offering was not going to be just spontaneously put together. When Paul arrived, it wasn't just going to be a spur-of-the-moment passing of the plate. No, Paul says, each one of you is to put aside and save. It was to be done diligently and deliberately. And then fourth, the amount that these believers gave was to be in accordance with how much surplus the Lord blessed them with each week. He says, put aside and save as he may prosper. So Paul doesn't give them a minimum amount to give, and he doesn't give them a percentage to give. He just says, as you prosper, give. And the reason why Paul wanted them to give in this manner, verse 2, was so that no collections be made when I come. Paul doesn't want to have to be going through this process when he arrives. If the whole church followed these instructions that Paul laid out, there would be no problem getting together a sizable amount to take to the saints in Jerusalem. Paul wouldn't need to take a collection when he arrived. Paul likely did not want to rush and try to throw enough money together. He probably didn't want anybody to feel strong-armed or pressured into giving when he came. As he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, which we often hear quoted, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. This offering, this collection 
It was to be a love offering to the Jerusalem church. It was not to be a Paul-made-me-do-it offering. It was supposed to be a God-fearing offering, not a Paul-fearing offering. So he wants it to be set before he comes. Next, verses 3 to 4. Paul says, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. It's instructive for us here to note Paul's wisdom in the handling of these funds. Paul avoids all appearances of trying to scheme to embezzle money from this offering that is being gathered together. He's making sure that the ones who handle the money are known and trusted by the ones who gave the money. He says, you pick, you Corinthian church pick who carries this offering. He doesn't say, don't worry, the money will be safe with me. No, he says, whoever you pick, they're going to carry it to the church in Jerusalem. And as the apostle overseeing this operation, Paul will write letters of introduction for these Corinthian messengers who will be carrying the money. And these letters are intended to let the Jerusalem church know who these people are who've been authorized to carry this money and who it is who sent them, who they can give thanks for, who they can yearn for in their hearts. And in verse 4, Paul says, if it works out, he'll go along with them. And it turns out he did go along with them. Now, though this collection was for a specific set of circumstances, Paul's wise instructions here carry over to how you and I as believers ought to participate in giving for the cause of Christ. Whether it's our regular Sunday morning offering, a special communion or end-of-the-month offering, or even ministries like Operation Christmas Child, these principles that Paul talks about here can help us be a bigger blessing to others and make more of an impact for Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, in God's providence, we've already started taking this approach with Operation Christmas Child. For example, in your bulletins, under our life together, at the bottom, just makes a note that this year we collected 76, or we, we stuffed 76 shoeboxes to send to kids. And starting this year, starting this month, actually, we're hoping to take this kind of approach, this deliberate, regular, month-by-month approach leading up to the collection of next year for the shoeboxes. And this month, we're asking, the month of December, that you would prayerfully consider buying either coloring books or a small little toy instrument like a harmonica or a flute um, or a Christmas-themed item, and there's a box in the middle room where you can drop that. And next month, we'll be asking for a, a different kind of uh, item that you can buy and, and drop into that box. And the idea is that we'll collect more that way than just one mad rush at the end of the year to try to get enough in. And this year, we reached 70 or so kids. We will have reached 70 or so kids with the gospel through the shoeboxes that we have packed and shipped off. But imagine if next year we have enough to pack 140 shoeboxes. What does that mean? That means that there will be 
70 more kids we have reached than we have reached this year. Instead of 70, 140 kids will receive the gospel in a personal and loving way. This congregation is a very loving and giving congregation. You all are a tremendous blessing through your giving. And I'd say that we truly punch above our weight when it comes to giving. We're a small congregation, but we're big givers. And our giving is to be for the glory of God, the good of his people, and the salvation of the lost. And you all excel in that. But in Paul's words, excel still more. Keep going. Let's give regularly. Let's all take part in giving. Let's give deliberately. And let's pray to God for wisdom to know how he would have us use the surplus that he has prospered us with. How would he have us use that? And let's continue, as Paul was, to be above board and beyond reproach in how we handle what is given. And that's something that we can be grateful that our financial secretary and treasurer already excel at doing. So it's just very practical ways that we can love others. Next, that brings us to Paul's travel plans. Now, how will we learn to love others through travel plans? Well, let's take a look here. Since Paul has already mentioned his coming to these Corinthians in connection with the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, Paul continues by outlining what his travel plans are at the moment. Verse 5, he says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Macedonia was a Roman province, and it included the churches of Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. And these churches also would take part in the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And in fact, when you start reading through 2 Corinthians, Paul holds up the Macedonian believers as extraordinary examples of Christian generosity. And he holds them up as examples in order to spur the Corinthians on to finish their collection. Paul's third missionary journey would take him through those Macedonian churches as he strengthened the believers there. And if you want to read more about that, you can find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, through chapter one, or 21, verse 17. Look at verse 6. Paul says, And perhaps, after he's gone through Macedonia, perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. What struck me about these verses is Paul's desire to spend time with the Corinthians. There tend to be certain individuals you enjoy spending time with, and other individuals you find it difficult to spend time with. And so you might kind of shrink back from wanting to do that. From what we've read in this letter, you get a certain picture of the church in Corinth. What kind of people do you think they were? The kind of people you would love to spend a lot of time with, or the kind of people you'd kind of shrink back from wanting to spend time with? Probably that latter category. 
And yet here's Paul saying, I want to be with you. I want to spend a whole winter with you. You'd think the Macedonian people would be more pleasurable to spend time with, but Paul says, I'm just passing through there. I want to spend time with you, maybe a whole winter with you. Paul's not being fake in saying that to them. I want you to see the big-heartedness of Paul in his outlining his travel plans here. Do you see how Paul loves the way Jesus loves? We just talked in Sunday school about Peter. Peter could at times be one of those individuals, I don't know if I want to hang around with Peter. He seems to jam his foot in his mouth quite a bit. But Jesus loved Peter. And Paul loves these Corinthians. He's loving them the way he exhorted us to love back in chapter 13, the love chapter. It's the love of God. It's the love that God calls us to love one another with. And what kind of love is that? It's a love that forgets self and focuses on the benefit of others. When you are loving like that, you will not shrink back from spending time with those whom you typically find it difficult to spend time with because you'll be concerned about how can I minister to them? How can I move them along in their walk with Christ? Now, in verse 7, Paul qualifies his plans and his hopes by saying, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. Paul understands that Jesus Christ is the one who directs his steps. Paul is making plans, which is a wise and good thing to do, yet he's constantly submitting those plans to the Lord who's commissioned him. You need to do both. You should plan. You should not float through life by the seat of your pants. You should plan. And yet at the same time, you should always submit your plans to the will of Jesus Christ. And instead of, when your plans go awry, grumbling about it, instead you should remember that the Sovereign Lord is the one who has altered your travel plans. And we should be open to that. We should be open to him changing our plans or nixing them all together and giving us new plans because he's Lord and we're not. So Paul says, if the Lord permits. And according to verses 8 through 9, it was the Lord's plan for Paul to remain a while in Ephesus. Verse 8, Paul says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And if you want to read about that, just read Acts 19. That talks about the wide door of effective service that Paul had in Ephesus. All the miracles the Lord was enabling him to do. But it also talks about the adversaries, the people that rose up and brought that time of ministry to a close. God had seen fit to throw the door wide open for the gospel to go forth, for many to come to faith, and yet at the same exact time, God ordained that many adversaries rise up against Paul. And you and I can't really see how those two things fit together. How does a wide door for effective service fit together with many adversaries opposing me? We don't know. 
but God knows. God's ways are higher than our ways, as we saw in in Sunday school. God is sovereign over all our circumstances, even when we don't understand how those circumstances fit together for the glory of God. Just applying these verses 5 through 9 to us, do you love difficult people? Do you? Are you willing to spend time with people you don't like all that much? Do you give of yourself in that way? Remember, Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich? Do you give of yourself by spending time with people it's hard to spend time with? When you make plans, do you submit those plans to the sovereign will of Christ? Do you recognize the wide-open doors for effective service the Lord gives you? And do you walk through those doors even when there are many opposers? Those are good questions for us to ask ourselves. Well, that brings us to the third practical snapshot of love that we see in verses 10 through 11, and that has to do with Timothy's travel plans. Timothy's travel plans. Since Paul's on the subject of travel, Paul informs them of his son in the faith, Timothy's travel plans. Look at verse 10. Paul says, Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Now Paul, he's already informed them of Timothy's coming. If you turn back to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 17. Paul there says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy is being sent to this church to help these believers put into practice what Paul's been writing about in this letter. These Corinthians had forgotten what Paul was teaching them, and so they needed a flesh and blood reminder of what it looks like to live out the Christian life. Now, you and I usually don't like it when we're comfortable in our sin and somebody comes along and starts meddling with our lives, saying, listen, you need to stop doing this and you need to start doing this. We don't like that. Well, Timothy is being sent by Paul to do just that, to take what Paul's been writing in this book, 1 Corinthians, and there's a lot of hard things in this book, and he is being sent to dwell among these people and live it out in front of them and tell them that you guys need to live this way too. How do you think the Corinthians are going to take that? What's our fleshly inclination when somebody comes to us with changes that we need to make. Well, our hackles get all raised up, don't they? Well, Paul here in verse 10 says, if he comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Paul does not want any of these believers to get their hackles raised up and to try to intimidate young Timothy and run him off from doing what he's been sent to do. Timothy is not just some nobody who they can choose to disregard and run out of town. For, Paul says, verse 10, he is doing what? 
the Lord's work, as I also am. Timothy is representing Paul, and Timothy is obeying Jesus Christ and what he is coming to do. So if Timothy comes and says, you need to live this way, and the Corinthians say, I don't think so, who are they rejecting? They're rejecting Paul, and they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Verse 11, so, Paul says, let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. That word despise, the Greek verb exutheneo, and it means to consider of no account. Paul says, don't consider Timothy of no account. It means to regard as a nobody, to look down on. When Timothy comes to these Corinthians and he reminds them of how to live the Christian life, they are not to smugly ignore what he has to say. They are not to look down their long noses at him and show him the door and say, who are you to teach us? You're no Paul. You're certainly no Jesus. Who are you? No, they are to listen to what he has to say, and they're to submit to what he has to say. Not because Timothy is something special in and of himself. He's not. But because he's telling them the truth, and he has been given charge over them in the Lord. Now, we all need correction. We all go astray. We all need to be taken aside from time to time and be reminded of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. And when the Lord sends those people to us, like a Timothy, you and I have a decision to make. How am I going to respond to this Timothy in my life who's telling me to live in a different way than I'm living now? Will we humbly receive correction or will we look down our noses at the person and turn a deaf ear to their instruction? In studying this passage, I was, just came to mind an incident last year when I was faced with this decision. I was getting sick quite often and my wife was trying to help me by suggesting various remedies that I could try but I didn't want to listen. And so I had a brother call me on the phone about it and say, hey, <laughs> you need to listen to what your wife's telling you. You need to receive her help. Well, I got kind of uppity about it. I didn't want to listen to what my brother had to say. In Paul's language, I despised what he had to say. And thankfully, after I hung up the phone, the Lord convicted me about it and he helped me call the brother back and ask his forgiveness for my pride. And I had to apologize to my wife. We should not despise the one who comes to us in love and in the name of the Lord in order to help us get back on the straight and narrow path of following Jesus Christ. The one who comes to you in such a way is giving of himself or herself for your sake. That brother or sister is sticking their neck out because chances are, if they love you, they don't want to correct you. They don't want to risk your displeasure. But because they love you, they're sticking their neck out for you and they're lovingly confronting you with your sin. And when a brother or sister does that for you, 
Do not kick sand in their face for that. Instead, return that brother or sister's loving concern for you by humbly receiving their correction. That's how we can love one another. That's a very rubber-meets-the-road kind of love. Lastly, we come to verse 12, where we learn about Apollos' travel plans. And in this verse, we come to the sixth and final now concerning, a topic that the believers had brought up in their letter. My Bible translates it, but concerning, but it's the same phrase, now concerning. It's the same phrase we've been seeing throughout the letter. Verse 12 says, but concerning, or now concerning, Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So it seems that the Corinthians had inquired about Apollos in their letter to Paul. Just to help us understand who Apollos is a little better, let's go back to chapter 18 of Acts. Acts 18, starting in verse 24. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, remember, that's the province where Corinth is, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So that's Apollos. That event happened before this letter. Apollos had been a tremendous help to the believers in Corinth. But turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When we began going through this book together, we saw how some of the believers had begun to wrongly place Apollos on a pedestal. And other believers were placing other teachers on their own pedestals, and they were competing, saying, well, this is my guy. Your guy isn't as good as my guy. Chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So Apollos' name had become a ladder to climb up so these individuals could elevate their own social status in the church. 
They had hitched their wagon to Apollos, and as he ascended, they hoped to ascend with him. Apollos' name and Paul's name were being pitted together against one another in the arrogant competition that was taking place in this church. But despite that, verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says that he greatly encouraged Apollos to visit them. What does that tell you about Paul and Apollos? It tells you that the competition between Paul and Apollos only existed in the minds of these Corinthian believers. There was no competition between Paul and Apollos. Paul already made that clear to them back in chapter 3 of this letter. Chapter 3, verse 4. Paul said, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we, Paul and Apollos, are God's fellow workers. Paul and Apollos were co-workers owned by God. You are God's field, God's building. And here in chapter 16, Paul puts living flesh on what he taught back in chapter 3 by encouraging Apollos to go to these believers. If Paul really was in competition with Apollos, if Paul really did care whether or not the Corinthians favored Apollos over him, he'd be trying to keep Apollos away from Corinth, not encouraging him to go to Corinth. So you see, Paul is not like some jealous boyfriend trying to keep all the other guys away from his girlfriend because he knows he's really not that great and he doesn't want some other guy coming in and sweeping his girl off her feet. Paul's not like that. Paul and Apollos could not care less about who the Corinthians' favorite teacher was. All they cared about was whether or not the Corinthians loved Jesus Christ. Paul encouraged Apollos to go because he knew that Apollos could help these believers love and follow Jesus Christ more. If a pastor or a teacher, in order to try and get you to only listen to him, tries to steer you away from other faithful men who will proclaim Christ to you, it may be because that teacher is not interested in whether or not you're committed to Christ, He's interested in whether or not you're committed to him. As a pastor, that's something I need to guard my own heart over, that there doesn't become this spirit of competition inside of me. That's how cult leaders behave. They want you to only listen, only hear my voice. Don't listen to anybody else. Now, a faithful pastor will warn you away from false teachers, but there should be no competition between faithful teachers. That wasn't Paul, and that wasn't Apollos. And it so happened, according to verse 12, that in God's providence, it was not going to work out for Apollos to go to Corinth. But Paul let them know that Apollos would come when the Lord gave him opportunity. 
The lesson here I want us to see is that as Christians, we need to remember that we are on the same team. We are part of the same family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as believers, we are called to minister to one another, to serve one another. But as we seek to minister to one another, we must be careful to never ever minister in a spirit of competition with one another. We need to remember that we have a common goal, and that is to help each other know Christ better and to make him known. So it doesn't matter under whose ministry someone is growing in Christ. All that matters is that they are growing in Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. That practical example that we see in 1 Corinthians 16, we see Paul teaching the very thing that he was living out in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any uh, consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then what does he teach about Jesus? The incarnation of Jesus, how he, being God, became a man, and how he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our example. So we should never concern ourselves with the question, is my ministry increasing? Is my influence increasing? We should only concern ourselves with this question, is Jesus Christ increasing in the hearts of those we are ministering to? And we should have the attitude that, hey, if someone else can help them love Jesus more than I can, let that person take my place so that they can love the Lord more. That should be our attitude. That was Paul's attitude. Hey, Apollos, go. Go to Corinth. Just the last passage I want us to turn to is John chapter 3, because I think John the Baptist gives us a great example of this. And this is the last text we'll go to, John chapter 3, verse 22. John 3, verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. Uh-oh, you have two separate ministries going on, and, and uh, they're doing the same thing. There's considerable overlap in the ministry taking place. Verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown in prison, 
Verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. That's a problem in their minds. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John wasn't standing there wringing his hands over the fact that more people were going to Jesus than were coming to him. First of all, it's in the Lord's hands anyway. However many people come, that's who the Lord's given me. I shouldn't be asking for more. I should be focusing on who he has given me. Secondly, John must be thinking, did you not hear when I pointed to that man and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What are you still doing following me? You should be following Jesus. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. You know, the best man isn't upset that the groom has the bride. At least he shouldn't be. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. That should be our attitude. As we minister, we should remember, I'm not the bridegroom. And my fellow minister is not the bridegroom. We are not in competition with one another. We are serving the bridegroom. And we are pointing the bride together to the bridegroom. So these are some snapshots of very practical ways in which believers in the early church loved one another. They intentionally gave toward the needs of others. They were, as we saw with Paul, they were to be so concerned about the well-being of others that they were desirous of spending time even with difficult people. And they should humbly and gently receive correction, as Paul exhorted them to do when Timothy came. And we also saw with Paul and Apollos that these believers out of love, they were not selfishly ambitious. Instead, they were ambitious for the spiritual growth of others and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see some more of these snapshots. But I want us to ask ourselves, are we loving people like this? And if we're not, there's no better time to start than in the Christmas season, a season in which we are reminded of how Jesus Christ has loved us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray.